If you would turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We'll read 1 through 5. And Paul is responding to what he would anticipate would be a question to those who he had just said that the law was given that sin may abound. It may be shown for what it is, the extreme amount of sin. Law was there and given to us so that we could just see how sinful sin is. And he says, but where sin abound, grace did much more or super abundantly abound. So he's responding and he starts out and he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Valid question. Seemed like it, wouldn't it? His response is certainly not. You couldn't be more emphatic. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. I read those words and I see Paul responding to the whole thought that if we are now under grace, if grace is far more abundant than any amount of sin that could be committed, why not just continue in sin that God could be glorified by giving us more grace? And he responds very emphatically, and he's saying, <clears throat> certainly not. God forbid. And his reason for being so emphatic is this. How shall we who died to sin continue any longer in it or live any longer in it? His thinking is such that he's saying, how can you even conceive of continuing in sin because you died to sin. You're dead to sin. Something has been accomplished that now, you know, and we all know what death is. <clears throat> death of anything is what? It's the termination of something, isn't it? Generally, we th you know, when somebody dies, they're going to go on to another dimension, but when they die, their life here ends. So when something dies... Paul is saying, listen, how could we possibly, in your wildest imaginations, continue in sin, being that you're dead to it? Something has transpired in a Christian's life that Paul sees and is explaining to these people, and that is that we who died to sin should no longer live any longer in it. Now, He's really talking about here because, you know, the, he goes on to talk about how we were baptized into Christ Jesus. Whatever he did on the cross, we were there and we partook of that. And that's what Paul is telling us. And I get to thinking, you know, when you look at these words, I see that, and it's been said before, we've all heard it, but the cross is that pivotal 
awesome, grand and glorious moment in all of human history in which that which was over here is now dead. And now we have this side of the cross. But without the cross, things remain the same. The, the cross to the world is nothing more than a historical event that a beaten and bloodied man hung on a cross and died. And we all, everybody, you know, a lot of people in the world know the story. All they see is, yeah, I heard that Jesus died on a cross. Yeah, I've heard that. But what they don't understand is what transpired in that divine exchange is where we live. Something of a great magnitude happened on that cross. On one side of the cross, we have the old. On the resurrection side, we have new. On one side, we have weakness. On the other side is power and strength and ability. On one side is the old covenant. And the other side is the new. Before the cross, there was the first Adam. After the cross, the second Adam. Before the cross, we have the old man. After the cross, we walk in newness of life as new men. There's something that had to have transpired on that cross that in the natural mind, in the natural perception of it, without Paul's revelation, we would maybe never know what transpired. The magnitude of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is beyond maybe understanding. And when we sing songs like, I need thee, every hour I need thee, we are those people <clears throat> who don't look back to the cross so much as a historical event, but we look to the cross and it becomes an ever-present reality in how we live, or it should. Because that is where Paul is saying, certainly, how should we who died to sin live any longer in it? If Jesus Christ accomplished what Paul is telling us here on the cross, then we can walk in it. We can live in it. We're commanded to. We're told that these are realities that whether or not you fully and completely embrace and, and live in that doesn't make it any less true. And we're back to the faith message, aren't we? We're not talking about you don't make this true because you believe in facts. This becomes reality to you because it is true, and because it's true, you can believe it. We can't believe anything that isn't true, can we? I guess we can. But if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to walk and live the Christian life as Jesus has made a way for us to do it, and we're going to have to do it in Him. We're going to have to do it through Him. We're going to have to do it by Him. There's no such thing 
in my mind, there, well, there is no such thing as a Christian who simply acknowledges the, the facts of what they read in the Bible or heard somebody say, and that never becomes a reality to them. They simply understand ideas. They simply have heard how horrible the cross is and are not moved by it because they're not understanding what's been done for them through it. So when Paul says that we who died to sin couldn't possibly live any longer in it, he's saying that for us to be dead, when something is dead or we are dead to something, it no longer has any rule, control, or power over us. It doesn't influence us. If we understand that we are dead, that what Jesus did, and we'll see in a minute, that we were in him when he died, and that becomes an understandable reality in your life, that's how we walk in newness of life. That, that scripture is used. We've had a baptism here not that long ago. What are those people stating? By their testimony to the rest of us that I'm being baptized, therefore now I join a church. What they're saying to us as witnesses is I have died. And by being buried and being brought up, I'm testifying to you and all who watched that I have now, as best as I know, have risen to newness of life. I was crucified and buried with him. Now I'm raised with him to newness of life. Christians don't stay the same, do they? Real Christians do not stay the same. It's, it's little by little. We know that. It's step by step. But we cannot possibly stay the same. We couldn't possibly continue in sin, could we? No. We, we, I mean, the facts remain. The facts are written here for us. We who died to sin, how could we possibly continue in it? My message isn't about overcoming sin. It really is about our image in Christ Jesus. Because we are those who have been transformed. And in that transformation process, in what he did from his birth to his life to his death to his burial, to his resurrection, and to his ascension are all things that Paul says we are in. We're part of that. We are united to that. What he did, who he is, and what he's provided is ours, not because we merit it in any way, but simply because we are in him when these things were accomplished and are accomplished, and are being accomplished. So, when he talks there about being baptized into Christ, or baptized into his death, in verse 3, we all know that baptism 
means to be immersed, right? I mean, that's totally, you're totally enveloped in something, aren't you? You're baptized. And I think back that in 1 Corinthians 10 too, we don't have to turn there, but it says that all the Israelites were what? They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what did that mean for those people? That meant that wherever Moses went, they could go. Whatever he accomplished, they benefited from. When the Red Sea was parted because of Moses, they went across, didn't they? They enjoyed the benefits of everything that Moses as their deliverer provided for them or God would work through Moses. But they were baptized into Moses. They were united with him in all that he did, everything that he accomplished, all because of their being baptized into him, united with him. So Galatians 3.27 tells us this. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I mean, if I asked you, what is, you know, what image are you trying to portray to others? I mean, we all have an image. I'm the big tough, you know, bully that just likes to get in fights, and I want everybody to have that image of me. No, I don't. But, I mean, we all want to project an image. We all want to show the world or others an image. But what is our image? What image are we to show others? Well, if you would, turn over to uh, um, Ephesians 4, if you would. Ephesians 4. Actually, I'm sorry, Colossians 3. Colossians 3. I'm going to get you all tripped up tonight. Colossians 3. In verse 8, he says, But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since what? You have put off the old man and his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We are being renewed, hopefully, right at this moment. Being renewed in knowledge. What does he say? According to the image of him who created him. We are to be exhibiting and manifesting and showing others a new image. But that happens a little at a time. It's a transforming process. But we are being renewed. How? Our minds, we all know the scripture, you know, uh, Romans 12, 1. Our minds sometimes are still back on this side of the cross. Our minds need to be renewed to what's on this side, who we are, who we are in Christ. And our minds need to be renewed into from this to who we really are. 
And again, we're not meriting any of this because my whole life, your whole life, needs to derive all of its force and power, all of its benefits, all of the transformation that needs to take place, all comes from Him. It's too easy in religious circles to start out real well and understand that it's by grace thou art saved through faith and turn that into I've got to start doing better. I've got to start not doing this and doing this and and begin to formulate these wonderful rules that we think, if we're not careful, cause us to possibly merit something that we already have in him. And what we need to do is see ourselves in him all the time and see that everything he has done is ours. And when we begin to have our minds renewed as to what that image is, we are being transformed into that image. In Romans 8, 28 is such a famous verse, isn't it? We know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What does he go on to say? Whom he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, the firstborn from the dead that he may be, or his son that we may be, he may be the firstborn among many. There's, some, there's something about the life we live and it's step by step and it's sometimes hardship and it's sometimes suffering. We've said that enough lately. Maybe not enough, but we know that every step we take, if we don't believe and we don't rest in the fact that we are in him through all this, knowing that all this is being accomplished for one purpose, not so that you can portray a grand image to the rest of us of who you are and what you've done, but the image of him is being created in us. There's something very, there's something very um, moving for me because in order for us to be in him, he had to first be like us. And that is what he did in his incarnation. Now, when I think about that and I dwell about what God did in the incarnation, what he had to become and what he had to do and live so that you and I can partake of who he is, that's a big deal to me. Because the cross doesn't exist without the birth, does it? And we don't do Christmas because Christmas would totally trash the birth, and it does. That holiday, it, it, you know, I got to thinking about it, it made me more angry than ever. 
Because the birth of Jesus Christ is the Word becoming flesh. It's God taking on humanity and becoming like you and me. Not so that he could bring God down to us, but so that he could restore the image that was lost and bring us back to God. That's what this is all about. The big picture is about that which was lost in the garden is being restored. That image that Adam, that, that, that communion with God, his creator, broken because of sin. And we got to inherit all of his failure, didn't we? But apart from Jesus being born, apart from God himself, that grand mystery of God manifest in the flesh, apart from him being born, growing up, learning, maturing, having experiences that only a human being could have. Being baptized in the River Jordan, Holy Spirit coming upon him without measure. Being driven into the wilderness to be tempted and tested beyond what we'll ever know. Because if you fasted for 40 days and then faced the devil, you better be in him. You better know where your strength comes from. But you want to talk about testing. 40 days, no food, you're pretty weak. The devil tested him to the uttermost. Then, to live that perfect life, and take that human experience to the cross and allow it to be crucified. That's not where it ends, is it? That's not where it ends. He was buried, put in a tomb. But he rose from the dead, the first born among many, image restored, humanity brought from a place of Adam's state to a glorified state where he now is through the veil and in the very presence of God for us. Paul tells us we are seated there with him. I am moved when I think about what was done Simply in him coming to this earth and becoming like me so that he could qualify not only to be my savior and representative in my place and taking the wrath and the guilt and the punishment for my sin, but qualifying as one of us to be our high priest. One who ministers to God on our behalf. Are you in him? 
Is that the image we want? Do we want our lives to then be restored to the image that was lost because of who he is and us being in him? In Colossians, turn back to Ephesians. Believe it or not, I'm way off my notes. <laughs> Ephesians 2. This is what Paul says. This is our, this is where we are. And it says you and you and you and you and you and you and you. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And once you once walked according to the course of this world, you and I walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked according to the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But... God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't come to this earth as a man and die the next day. Jesus Christ came to earth to experience our humanity as we know it, yet without sin. Back in Romans, if you turn back there. I got a little ahead of myself, but I want to. We finished up verse 5. It says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Paul says what? We died with Christ. It says that the old man was crucified. The old man. Who's the old man? Because whoever that old man is, whoever he is, whatever it is, Paul is saying, listen, that old man was crucified with Christ. He was put to death. 
the old man. Now, the old man... is referenced a couple times in Scripture. Now, I'll just read these. We were in Ephesians, but in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, it says that we, that we should, having put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, your former conduct, right here, Paul says, our former conduct, the way I was, the way Thomas was, the way we all were, He's saying that's our former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, if the old man, which I believe is humanity in Adam, that that humanity that lived in weakness, slaves to sin, unable to live and stand before God righteous. And Paul just mentioned about the law in chapter 5, right? In Romans. But the old man was crucified. So when I look at this, I see Jesus Christ. I see God himself taking on the weakness of human flesh. That, that, that human nature that we inherited, not sinful nature, but the nature that just is part of who we are as human beings. That weakness. That old man then... Is crucified. Jesus Christ put an end to the first Adam. We don't live there anymore. We shouldn't live there anymore. The first Adam was a weak slave to sin. Jesus Christ took the old man because he took on our humanity. He took the old man to the cross. And in weakness, it says, he died. And buried. But who is on the other side? The second Adam, right? We have the second Adam. We, not, we, we no longer live on the old man's side of the cross. Jesus Christ crucified in himself the old man, buried. He rose again. It was a new humanity that we are now in. That's the image that he restored. That's who we are being transformed into, whether you think so or not. But the old man was crucified. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would, please. Or swipe your device. 
I'm still up here with pages and, you know, haven't gotten up the nerve to bring the device up here yet. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject, subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid, or he did not take on the nature of angels, but he does give aid or take on the nature of the seed of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Jesus becoming a man unites God to humanity, doesn't he? There's a connection there. But what does he do for all eternity? He now unites humanity to the Godhead permanently. There's our forerunner. There's our pioneer. There's the one who has gone before us. There is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one that as we are in him, that as we see ourselves and understand that as we are in him, everything he has done, everything he is, and everywhere he is now is where we are. We are in him. We don't merit that. Your faith can't make that real. You have faith because it's real. In Adam, we inherit who he is as our representative. What he did and how he failed. All have sinned. In Christ, our old man is crucified, put to death. And we have been given his life by his spirit. The proof of this is Romans chapter 6. It's the sanctification in our life. There's evidence that we are walking in newness of life. Is, I mean, if, I hope you can look back in a week or month or a year and say, you know what? I am being transformed. Not in a self-deceived way, but in a way that says, you know, because of who I am in Christ, because what he has done for me, by my adhering to him so desperately, because I need him, I need everything he's done, and I am going to believe, which means more than just acknowledging the facts, it is a desperate adherence to him because he is your way back to God and the only way back. 
I want to be transformed into his image. You want to be transformed into his image. That's who we become when we live this life in him. We are being transformed. If you would turn back to Colossians 2. I know you got skipping around, but Colossians 2 again. I read, you know, sometimes people write things that are, it, it, it is written better than my talk. So I like to read some things that other people read. But in Colossians 2, if you're there, I just want to read something first. And it has to do with, this man kind of described in other terms too, but in a way, his, the incarnation. And how by the entrance of God into this realm, and because he's entered into this realm, and because he lived the life he did, he was able and did overcome he who is against you and I in every way. But it says, The Son of God enters the arena of life in the corrupt but tenacious regime of his ancient enemy. He comes in the form of a servant. He accepts all the conditions of life there. He is born of a woman made under the law. He is a blood native of the people. According to the flesh, he is a Hebrew. He is tempted to line up with the old regime, but obedient to his mission, even unto death. He assaults the enemy's position where it really matters, the place of death. Somehow in a moment and in a way that eludes historical description or poetic, poetic metaphor, he defeats the enemy just at the moment when he seems to have been defeated at the cross. He powerfully mastered the masters of the world and at the resurrection he appeared on the balcony as it were to announce his conquest. And Colossians says it like this, and you are complete in him, verse 10, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, and was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus Christ, the man, destroyed the power of the devil at the cross. And we were there with him. As we are in him, this is our confession. 
that all principality and power is now under his rule. In fact, you know, when it comes down to it, there is no power outside of God. Just because some have rebelled, angels and others, they have no power inherent in themselves, do they? They have no ability over you and I that God would have to allow. But no power exists outside of God. So when Jesus comes as a man, he's taking on that humanity that was under the control of our enemy, lived a perfect life, never once giving in to that enemy, marched through his kingdom, And in doing that, he took you and I to the cross. And in that cross, he defeats he who had the power of death. You and I in him are no longer under the power of death. We're no longer under the power of sin. His life was lived perfect. Are you... United to that? Is that who you are in Christ? Do you partake of his past and his future? Or is that not possible? One man wrote this. He says, our union with Christ is the center and the circumference of the Christian life. It's only because of what he's done that we have a life and that we're able to live it. Calvin, he equates our union with Christ and everything he's done with salvation. He, and I don't believe this either, you can't separate the work from the person. Too many, too many, I believe, want to have simply a legal relationship with Jesus. They want the benefits of what he has done. And there is some truth to that. We legally have what is his, but only as we are in him. We don't get to just pick and choose, well, he did that, I'll take that. As if Jesus can be divided and we can just take bits and pieces of them, and then the rest of it, well, I don't want to be joined to him when it comes to, as Paul said, suffering. I don't, I don't want that part. I just, I noticed on his tape table, one conference, Jesus had a fire insurance policy, and that's all I need. You and I receive the person of Jesus Christ, because that is who we unite ourselves to because he is the image. He is the one that unless you are in him, and if you want to picture it this way, I do, there is one narrow gate that allows you into the kingdom. And I'm telling you, you better be in him when you come to that gate. He is the gate. I mean, it's... it's You've got to be in him. You want to talk about desperate. 
You want to talk about living and being faithful to him and being joined to him in such a way that, you know what, when the time comes for me to go through the gate, I'm in him. I'm going through the gate in him. I'm not meriting it in any way. So, is it possible that we can be united to Him in only ways that we want to be united to Him? In other words, like I mentioned before, can we just take the legal aspects of what He did and say, you know what, I like that part. I'm going to somehow or I'm going to think I'm somehow receiving that without being joined to him, without me being found in him. Is that possible? Well, I've only lived 50-some years, so I have to rely on people who have a little more history than I have. And I still, you know, I think about this term, and this term this man came up with, it's a you know, it's, he said, we live in an age driven by our culture. And we don't know anything about our culture, do we? I mean, really, it's hard to know anything out of our culture. But we live in an age today that is, we live in spiritual individualism. Church today, for most people, is, I will join that because of what I get out of it. I'm not willing to join myself to him in all aspects of his life. I only want, well, gimme, gimme, gimme. Spiritual individualism has no place in this assembly. We can all benefit individually. But to be joined to Christ, to be in him in a way that you benefit from what he did from his birth to his ascension, Would you not say to be joined to him, as it says we are joined to the head, right? The head is the guy in charge or the source of what we need. Can you and I be joined to the head and not be a part of his body? That's not possible. Our union with him automatically, without question, joins us together under his head. We can't just come to church and be spiritually individualistic. I I, got to admit, my own personal testimony, when I was somewhere living somewhere else before I moved here, looking for a church, looking for an assembly, listening to tapes after tapes after tapes, thinking, I'm getting enough and when you go out in the world and, and or I, you know, I would go out and intermingle with people and I would find things that they did or said challenging to me. Things that, things that would confront me, things that needed to be changed and refined. The easiest thing for me to do is isolate myself because I don't want to have to deal with that. Well, guess what? You get joined together with these 2,000 people in this room. There's a, there's a lot. You know, and you know what? 
Nobody in here chose their mother or father. You didn't choose your brothers and sisters. You didn't choose me. We're placed here for a purpose. And I know that I'm a challenge to everyone in this room. I hope not. Nobody, we're in here to be matured to be refined, to be little by little, step by step, transformed into his image. So we can't be joined to him as head without being joined to his body. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Our being joined together is joined together under that headship. He is the unity that we have. He is who we're all heading toward as far as our new image. The other question I would ask then, is it possible for God's purpose in your individual life, God's purpose for His church, this assembly here, God's purpose in the world, can it be accomplished apart from His body? It was never designed that way. Jesus Christ gave Himself for the church. Members, individual, yes, but he gave himself for the church. And it is through the church that all the gifts, Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, all those things that are given to each member in here by his grace are necessary for the edification of itself in love. We need those gifts. You can't generate any of it. It just says in Romans 12 that we are to minister or, or to, to use the gift that we have according to the grace given us, whether it be ministering or giving or... You read it. You can read, I, right? You can read. I just learned the other day. No. God's church is where we are going to be transformed into his image. You cannot sit in New Jersey and listen to tapes and be matured. You can't. I'm here to testify to that. You can't go somewhere to church and it gets a little harsh or difficult and I don't like what that person said or the preacher and go, you know what, I don't like that. I'm leaving. I'm going to find me somewhere else. You cannot do that if you belong here and if you intend to mature. You can't. God never intended for us to be all these individuals all over just getting what we want and leaving the rest undone. So as members of his body, 
how do we, if we are joined to the head, if we are in Christ and all that he's done and all that he is, if we want those benefits and we want to be joined to him, if we want to be in him, and yet we don't really want to be joined here, that's not doable. That's not possible. But if I'm going to be joined to members individually of his body, I've got to ask myself. I look at Scripture and I go, okay, what does that require of me? You know, you got your own life to live. I'm not here to tell you how to live. I've got to ask myself this question. Do I, do I view the members of his body individually, do I view those as he views them? Do I love them as he loves them? Do I seek their well-being as he seeks their well-being? Do I set aside and have the mind of Christ, as Philippians 2 says, have this mind in you? Do I humble myself and set aside my personal whatever in order that I might help somebody who maybe isn't the most popular. Because I'll tell you, it's just easy to hang around with, you know. There's nothing wrong with that. We all got friends and family. That's, that's wonderful. We need that. But we as a church, and I think we do a good job of this, but I think we could do better. We could always do better, right? I could do better. Okay, let me put it this way. I could do better. I could do better. There's an interesting... I came, you know, I think we were in Ephesians a few weeks back. I think Brother Tom was preaching, and I came across this verse in Ephesians 3. If you want to turn there, you can. Ephesians 3. In verse 8, we all know that the church was a mystery before Paul's revelation, right? We all know that nobody really understood this breaking down of a barrier between Jews and Gentiles and that all in him would be one. It's a mystery. But he says in verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, from which the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And this is the verse, to the intent that now, meaning now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What a statement! God's purpose then is to take the church and by the church exhibit and manifest and display to heavenly principalities and powers His power and His work that happens here. I hope it happens here. We're just wasting our time. But it is the church who we are united to, whether you like it or not. We are under his headship, members one of another, whether you like it or not. 
Now, yeah, I'm not going to go into it, but we all know that, you know, backbiting and, you know, devouring one and all that, that's what Paul was concerned about, was we need to have the same love, the same concern as he has for us, for others. I also think we really do need to consider what, and I, you know, I don't always know how to do this, but if God has, by his grace, given gifts to individuals in this church, and I know the charismatic gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are just, we're not talking about getting, you, know, you don't work that up. But in some ways, in some ways, I, I, um, it, it's just you have this thing in you that says we need God to manifest himself to us in those gifts, not to make us something or popular. But those gifts were given by Jesus Christ. They were designed to edify his body. They were meant to, in my opinion and the way I see it, they were meant to destroy strongholds in people's lives, things that would hold them down and oppress them. But for some reason, we either don't have the Holy Spirit, or for some reason, I, I, I don't like to think that we blame, you know, we like to blame God. Well, we're waiting for him to pour out his Holy Spirit. We're waiting for something. And I think really what we need is we need to change. If we have the Holy Spirit within us, the gifts reside there. There's something about us that we ought to be concerned about. I mean, in the Old Testament, when things didn't go well, the first thing they did was go, we need to try harder. We need to send more armies in. No, the first thing they did was fast and pray and rend their clothes and go, what, is, what are we not doing? What's the problem, Lord? It's an honest question, isn't it? None of us need to be superheroes in here. We don't need our name on a marquee out front. You know, Brett raised the dead last week and, you know, so-and-so prophesied. Well, I, don't, I could care less who. I really don't care. I care more that the body of Christ is not being edified through the use of those gifts by individual members. And in Romans 12, is, they're, not, they're charismatic gifts, but they have more to do with giving and governing and things that need to be done within a body. So I would say, would you be willing to just give it some thought? Ponder the fact that all that we have in Christ Jesus, by being in him, we are being transformed into his image. We are joined one to another, having the same concern for each member. Are we doing that? Should we be doing that more? Second Corinthians 3.18, my last verse, he says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as, a, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen.
Stand up. your name on high, and I love to sing your praises, I'm so glad you're in my life, I'm so glad you came to save us, you came, you came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross my death you pay from the cross to the grave from the grave to the Lord I lift your name on high Lord I lift your name Lord I lift your name on high and I love to sing your praise I'm so glad you're in So glad you came to save us. You came, you came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My debt you paid from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name. Oh, you came from heaven. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My death you paid from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the Lord, I lift your name on. 